Hello and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan Flagon of Wine Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy Sacred Raisin Cakes Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Sacred Raisin Cakes Swingle? You know, I honestly don't know. I was given this nickname by our guest today, and I think we're just going to have to hear from him to find out more. Well, to that end, let me introduce our guest. Today, we are continuing our trend of bringing new people on the show, so we have with us in studio Griffin, the most interesting man in the world, Schaefer. Now, Griffin, why do they call you the most interesting man in the world? Well, you know, like Jeremy said, I don't know. It was the show hosts who gave me that uh, nickname, <laughs> so I will defer to the show hosts. Uh, take it away, John. <laughs> well, we, well, me and Jeremy call him the most, it, well, I won't speak for Jeremy. I call Griffin the most interesting man in the world because, well, he's just like done a bunch of stuff in his life. And it like, it doesn't matter what kind of subject you bring up. Griffin has like either participated in it or just has some interesting thought to share on it. Like whether it's like hosting radio or like piloting or Bible quizzing or theology or like just there are tons of things that Griffin is both like well informed on uh and uh, so it's just it's really a, a bunch of fun to talk to him so that's that's part of why we wanted him on the show is because he's just a great guy who's a lot of fun to chat with well I think at one time I mentioned to Griffin something like hey so I watched this movie the other day and Griffin's like oh I owned a movie theater a while back and I'm like oh <laughs> <laughs> just like to, to bolster your point there a little bit, John, like it's just Griffin's done everything. Uh, so he, he's about to insist that he he has not, in fact, done everything. But uh, I, I, I'll have get not, ahead of I, I have, in fact, not done everything. In fact, I have a very lengthy uh, to do list um, before I die. And it seems to be getting longer, not shorter. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there are many more things left to do. Many more worlds left to conquer. <laughs> Griff, Griffin, the bucket list, Schaefer. There we go. Oh, there we That's go. The nickname. <laughs> there we go. Okay, but but I think you need to explain a little bit now, Griffin. Like, what? Why are we wine and sacred raisin cakes? What's going on? Well, so you guys invited me on the show to talk about one of my favorite verses uh, from uh, Holy Scripture, and I mean, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite verses in the sense of like the most inspirational or the most meaningful to me or the most life changing or anything like that. But it is one of my favorite verses from a comedic perspective, where every time I read it, I giggle, and I think it's just totally awesome. And it's uh, Hosea 3.1, which uh, in the NIV, toward the end, it makes reference of sacred raisin cakes. And so, uh, uh, or, or if you prefer the KJV, it makes mention of flagons of wine. And so those were, you know, two of the the spots where I was picking out uh, nicknames, uh, either from the NIV or the KJV, but essentially the 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 amusing nature of the notion of like bowing down and worshiping the sacred raisin cakes just <laughs> fills me with giggles, you know. So anyway, that's that's on the agenda to talk about. So if I understand this correctly, we invited you on our show where we break open misunderstood and out of context Bible verses in the hope of providing spiritual inspiration and biblical interpretation pro tips to our good listening public. And and you responded with, oh, we're going to talk about raisin cakes. 
<laughs> sacred raisin cakes, not just regular oh. raisin cakes, but it's important to include the sacred raisin cakes. And depending upon the translation, uh, either loving them or bowing down and worshiping them. So uh, it, it, it's, you know, pretty interesting. I mean, there is actually, I mean, it's not described in Hosea exactly what they're talking about with the sacred raisin cakes. So it is a little bit of a, you know, biblical interpretation. And there is an actual, like, you know, message, and it's a good message. Uh, we shouldn't worship the sacred raisin cakes, but understanding what that means in modern context, I think is useful. All right. Well, how about before we get too into that, uh, we when we invite guests on, we like to first ask them a series of questions uh, to to get to know our guests a little bit and and to and how they think. And then uh, after we've built up enough anticipation for what uh, the actual scripture verse is going to be, we then dive into that for the second portion. So maybe we'll just like leave it there for a second so that people could be like waiting to find out your hot take on <laughs> sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's first go through uh we have our, our series of 10 questions for you so griffin are, are you ready for us to ask you these questions i have no idea but let's go for it it's time for the meat all right so we'll start with question number one so question number one uh you know who in your opinion is the most interesting figure in world history oh golly oh golly um could be good or bad doesn't have to be a there good person. There are so many. I mean, there are so many, right? Um, so what was like the people? what was what was the de the declarative word there? The de the, the de determining word or phrase? Uh, it is interesting. The question. Figure. <laughs> the most interesting figure in world history. Most interesting. I'm I, I'm going to go with the obvious, uh, probably Jesus. Um, I mean, just because you know God incarnate. Um, that's that's more interesting than really anything else I could come up with. I think. Hmm. Well, it is it is too bad because that is incorrect because you, in fact, are the most interesting man in the world. So I, I think clearly the answer to number one is Griffin Schaefer. <laughs> but you, I, You've already uh, failing the test. Well, so a point of clarification, you, you did say uh, in history, and, and I have not joined the annals of history quite yet. <laughs> You've joined the timeline, though, the, uh, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> All seriousness, though, I mean, Jesus is pretty interesting. If he wasn't, I don't think we'd be chatting about sacred raisin cakes today. So <laughs> that is true. That is very true. All right. On to question number two. Uh, what is your favorite hymn? Oh, probably Mighty Fortress. Although, I mean, that's a good pick. I have a I have a handful. Pretty much any Easter hymn is is going to be you know something I like. I, I'm not sure Crown with Many Crowns. Um, I I'm a big fan of most Easter hymns, but uh, Mighty Fortress is um, I don't know. I get goosebumps every time I sing that one. Is it bad that when you said Easter hymns, the song I immediately thought of was the He came from heaven to earth to <laughs> There, there the are worse Easter, Easter hymns. hymns. It's not a bad song, but it's also not a hymn, so I don't, I don't know why. I... Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. There are worse hymns. <laughs> well, no. So, so Crown Him With Many Crowns, I'm glad you said that one, because that is a criminally underrated hymn for being one of the best hymns of oh, all time deeply the, do you know that verse right. the lord of years the potentate of time oh dude <laughs> so oh yeah well so i mean i i am a big fan of hymns that are both musically beautiful like where you can just listen to it and it's just it's beautiful music 
combined with uh, lyrics that are um, condensed awesomeness, right? Um, and there's a handful of hymns that that fit into that category. And um, you know, when you, you sing them, I just have a, this sort of like uh, you know goosebump experience of just like wow, this is both true and profound and amazing all at the same time. All right, so moving on to question number three here. So, Griffin, we do need to know, uh, when was it that you realized the truth and became a Calvinist? <laughs> um, I am, I am, I am uh, let's say I'm an agnostic and I am still searching for truth. <laughs> we wrote this question in this way specifically to trigger non-Calvinists. So, but <laughs> yeah, I, f I figured you, you came on the show, so we had to roast you a bit. <laughs> yeah i understand i understand nobody's perfect but i love you anyway ah good you, you, were, pre you were predestined to love us that's that <laughs> uh, yeah. i had no choice in the matter <laughs> well no you still had a willing choice this is this is compatibilism not fatalism <laughs> oh okay fair enough then uh sorry we just had to do it to you um, but, yeah. but that being said, uh, question number four, uh, who is your favorite theologian, not from the Bible? Oh, wow. Oh, there's so many to choose from. I'm, I mean, there's, there's so many, I, it's, it's different people for different reasons, right? Um, I, I am drawn to Luther. I mean, I am drawn to Wesley. I am drawn to Zwingli. Uh, if I had to pick one, only one, I suppose I would pick Luther. Um, I mean, I, I don't hail from Lutheranism, but, but I certainly have a, a, an affinity for Luther. Um, and some, obviously very much not all of what he wrote, but, uh, a, a good number of the things theologically that he wrote, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of. Sweet. Well, and you like Mighty Fortress, so sounds like, uh, Luther yeah. is a a big guy for you as he should be <laughs> are you sure you're not a lutheran i i i last i checked i'm not a lutheran um there's certain things about lutheranism that i'm not really 100 percent compatible with i i don't think any of them are essentials of the faith they're they're all basically non-essentials um but when i when i do a general place of luther within the history of the evolving nature of christian uh, doctrine <laughs> i i tend to find myself saying like if i was alive during luther's or or recently post luther luther period uh in history i would i would probably have a fairly strong affinity for that particular point of view well all right sounds Sweet. good well, and you're not a Calvinist, so I mean that, that would true. also put you in the good graces of today's Lutherans. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, let's move on to question number five here. So question number five is, what is the best nonfiction book written by a non-Christian? Oh, wow. These are, oh, these are good questions. Um, That's why we didn't send them to you ahead of time, so that you have to think on air. It's true. And this is your opportunity to throw someone out of the kingdom of God if there's like anybody you're just like really wanting to, to, to pull that on. Well, Calvin's institutes are pretty right, good. So <laughs> I don't know if the person who wrote this book is a Christian or not. Um, so I will just say it's a secular book and I will make no determination on the, you know, the religiousness 
or lack thereof of its author. Uh, but a book that I am particularly fond of is called Stealing Fire from the Gods. And that is not a, you know, it's not a religious book. It's the idea of how stories are formed, uh, how fiction stories, uh, nonfiction and fiction stories are crafted both in the, in our minds and in sharing them collaboratively and how they evolve into a structure that works for uh, effectiveness. Well, dang, that sounds really good. <laughs> My reading list is going to get long, I think. Yes. Well, you'll have to give us the 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 uh, author and maybe a link for that, and we'll stick it in the show notes so people can check it out. All right. Uh, question number six. Uh, simple. Uh, yes. Not not a yes or no. I guess. Uh, but one or the other. Narnia or Middle Earth. Ooh. Um, I'm going to say Middle Earth. I think Narnia is more useful for children, and it is. Um, I think more useful from a, I mean, obviously it's an allegory of, of Christianity and so forth. And so I've got a lot of affinity there in terms of both as a beautiful story or set of stories and things that can help us learn things, uh, tangentially allegorically about Christianity. But I think in terms of overall story, uh, I think middle earth is stronger. Yeah. I'm reading the two towers right now. Uh, cause the Babylon B is doing a podcast. For subscribers they're they're reading through the book and just doing some great podcasts on it and it's just the best thing to read right right now especially it's like other world and and uh, i don't know it it's just uh really like every chapter almost there'll be a goosebumps moment and i just come to appreciate it a whole lot more so i agree with you even though i do like narnia um, yeah i actually had the opportunity uh i don't know what third or fourth time ago that I was in England. Um, I had had the opportunity to actually go, uh, have a pint in the, um, the Eagle and child or no, is it the Eagle and child? Uh, the, the, the pub in, um, uh, the university, not Cambridge, uh, Oxford, the, it's the Oxford, uh, uh, pub where the, the gang of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and the other folks uh, uh, sat and collaborated. And I actually got to sit at the table in front of the fireplace where they uh, sat. And that was, that was pretty cool. Is that the, the Inklings? Is that their name? Yeah, the Inklings. Uh, and there's a little plaque up on the wall that says, you know, here's where the Inklings were. No photos, just a little, little tiny plaque uh, kind of thing hanging up on the wall. And uh, Eagle, I think it's the Eagle and Child. But I could be I could be wrong. English pubs are always named noun and noun. And it's just a question of figuring out what the two nouns are. <laughs> well, yeah. So not to belabor this question, but uh, I feel like not enough Christians have read Dorothy Sayers, who I believe was also part of the Inklings, right? It's like Lewis and Tolkien. Was Chesterton part of it? No, Chesterton was not. Um, I mean, Chesterton okay. was um, probably wouldn't have felt connected to them, I think. Yeah, his writings remind me a lot of Lewis and uh, and Tolkien and Sayers, but uh, but I, I kind of see them as all the same. They're all British. They're all kind of in that same era. Um, but I don't. Right. I find that and all very all smart. Yeah, for sure. I find that not enough people have read Sayers, and I think her work is just outstanding. So maybe maybe one of these yeah. days on this podcast, I'll find a way to work in some Sayers content. I don't know. I think she's lovely. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Well, we've already talked about uh, Esther Meek Lightcap and uh, John Frame. So, I mean, we can just like keep bringing in cool people from the past uh, on each of our podcasts. Yeah, enough people stand Chesterton and, and Tolkien and obviously Lewis and, and for good reason. But uh, 
there's some other people who could get some love. So, <laughs> all right. Well, let's do question number seven here. So uh, this one's a bit of a story. Um, uh, so Griffin, you uh, have uh, uh, gone to sleep one night after a, a great productive day of, of marking a few things off of your checklist. Uh, and then in a dream, your favorite theologian, Martin Luther, appears to you. And he says, now that I've gone to be with the Lord, I've realized the worst book in the Bible isn't actually James. It was blank <laughs> all along. Oh, uh, see, I love James. I think I, I, I I'm going to say Luther. You are, you are not actually Luther. You are, you are a demon sent to confuse me because James is an awesome book. <laughs> so, but what, what, what would actually be the worst Bible in your dream? What would Martin Luther tell you? It's not James. It's the the worst book. I. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. You get a, They're you all get a, awesome. a free blasphemy pass just for this podcast. You get... Okay, a free a free blasphemy <laughs> pass. Okay, how about this? How about the the book that I wish didn't exist? How's that? Yeah. I'll allow it. Go for it. Like like it is it is divinely inspired. It's a very profoundly important book and a very uh, beautiful book. But I wish it didn't exist because I think ultimately focus on it leads Christians astray, and that is uh, Revelation. Mm. Oh yeah. Hmm. That's a good answer, I think. Mm. Yeah, but like, if we didn't have it, how would we know, like, that um, you know, Kirk Cameron's going to get raptured from a plane? And last time, yeah, I mean... see, it, yeah, this is what I'm talking about in in terms of misinterpretation. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it, it's one of those things where, like, I mean. It's an important book. It's a critically important book, and obviously, it's divinely inspired, and obviously, it belongs in in the Bible. Um, I am frustrated with a really, actually, relatively modern movement in Christianity that seems to focus on that book in exclusion of everything else, and I think that really kind of leads us away from uh, the true God. Um, and I, I. I I think it's actually counterproductive to uh, kingdom work. Well, it's sad, too, because isn't Revelation just chock full of just illustrious things about God and his, his power and his majesty and his sovereignty? And it seems like every Bible study class on the book of Revelation devolves into charting the end times and fanciful interpretations of like tricky passages that are kind of speculative you know? right it, it turns uh, into a puzzle right and it's like the interpretation the interpretational work becomes a puzzle to solve and and like i don't know that that's the right way to go about it i think as much as i love western christianity and by western i mean you know everything west of like poland basically um uh, but basically western christianity's uh i i like western christianity's embrace of logic when it comes to doctrine and embrace of logic when it comes to, you know, uh, reading of scripture and, and interpreting scripture. Um, but I think we can, um, I think the West can take a page or two from the, our Orthodox brothers in terms of letting certain things that are mysteries remain mysteries. Man, you and Luther really would get along. Well, kind of the opposite of that question is number eight. And uh, question number eight uh, is, what is the most underrated book in the Bible? James. <laughs> James. It has to be James. No, Hosea. No. Um, Jude. Actually, I think I'm going to go with Jude. Um, I think it's one of the most underrated because, and, and that's actually my serious answer. I'm going to say Jude. I think it's, it's, it's tiny. 
Um, it is often skipped um, because it is tiny and doesn't necessarily have any sort of unique doctrine in and of itself. Um, but there are some extraordinarily beautiful passages uh, from Jude. Uh, a lot of stuff good, that's good in there. And it's a short book, easy to memorize. Hint, hint. <laughs> I think I've told you before, Griffin, that the Jude doxology is one of my favorite verses in scripture. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I Yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't have it in front of me, but I, I, I have memorized it. I don't know if it's word perfect, um, but it's like now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory or something like that. Um, yes, that is it. In fact, um, I actually translated Jude uh, from the original Greek, and my translation reads as follows to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and set you before his glory without blemish and without exaltation to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and greatness, mighty and majesty, both now and through all the ages. Amen. That's pretty base. Amen. Yeah. That's like one of those, he just writes this tiny little letter and then he's just like, oh, by the way, here's the, one, of, one of the greatest sentences <laughs> in the history of literature. Right. Right. There, right. <laughs> yeah. Jude's got a couple of those like really, really awesome sentences like that. Like what's the, um, I'm totally going to butcher it, but it's, is it, it's in Jude, right? With the, you know, the, the once for all delivered to the saints faith. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think so. Like passage, which is. Which uh, I I know is not the way that it's in all the English translations, but I re I just love that of you know jamming all of the descriptors in you know uh, between the uh, you know right before the word faith. Uh, it's just it's just really really good. Well, hey, so moving on to question number nine here. So you gave us the most underrated book. So now uh, can you give us the most underrated doctrine? Oh whoa, oh huh. The most underrated, well, underrated by whom? You can leave that up to interpretation there. Hmm. Most underrated doctrine. Okay, so I'm going to get on my little soapbox, um, <laughs> and I am going to say the most underrated doctrine by mainstream American Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity. Ooh, yeah, that's good. So so why why do you say that? I don't think the average typical evangelical Christian in America could accurately tell you the doctrine of the Trinity. And moreover, I think they would say, uh, like when you're trying to explain how, why it's kind of, sort of a little bit important that they be able to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, their <laughs> eyes will glaze over and say, but all I need to know is that Jesus loves me, right? Yeah, so it's kind of like even if people can state the doctrine correctly, people might not understand, like, why it's important. Why does it matter? Like, you know. Yeah, like, why does it matter and why is it like the, like, it's not even that it that it matters because many doctrines matter. Like, actually, all of the doctrines matter. But I mean, even the non-essentials have some implications, right? But like, it's not just that it matters or it matters a lot, but it's like the thing that matters. It's like, it is, it's not, it is, it is God, right? It is our, it is our, our human understanding of God, but it is the, our human understanding of God that lays the bedrock and and context and everything for every other belief that we have and, and why Christianity matters at all, right. Um, is, is part is wrapped up in the Trinity. It, it it's like these, these, 
you know, like when, when somebody doesn't understand the Trinity and doesn't seem interested in trying to understand the Trinity, I keep, I question what they really consider to be a Christian faith, right? Like, like, how is it that you can, like, what, what is unique about your Christian faith other than just trying to be a good person? Um, and it, it all stems from like being able to at least have a basic idea of the Trinity and articulate it. Well, I do find it interesting that for all our manifold differences, it sure seems like it's the doctrine of the Trinity that holds Christendom together, like Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, you know, whatever other, there's some smaller separate sects like the Coptic church or whatever. I don't know what all those people believe necessarily, but it does seem like people are pretty united that like Mormonism is something different. It's like, why? Well, they deny the deity of the son and moreover, they deny the Trinity, you know? Um, therefore their baptism is not in the name of the father, son, and the spirit as Jesus commands in Matthew 28. And they don't worship the same God. So it's like, you know, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, we might kind of think that the other groups don't worship God as purely or as correctly as we do, but at least we're all worshiping the same God because he's the same Trinitarian God, you know? Right. I, I would look at it and say, like, I can look at somebody from one of those differing faiths and I could say, you are my bro brother in Christ, right? Um, and how can I say that you are my brother in Christ, even though we disagree in the non-essentials and some of the essentials, right? So I would say, you know, the Trinity is obviously the essential, um, but there are other essentials of the faith that stem from the Trinity, right? The, the doctrine of the incarnation, right? Is, is a, is a, you know, really, really <laughs> super essential, right? And, and you could argue, well, the doctrine of incarnation is actually really sort of a subordinate doctrine to not subordinate. It is a part of the doctrine of the Trinity in a sense. I suppose that's true. Um, or at least it's, it, it follows from the logical conclusions of the doctrine of the Trinity. But ultimately, like you could say, you could say, um, if you take those core essentials and, and, and look from Christian denomination to Christian denomination, I can look across all of this sea of kingdom, uh, of, of God's kingdom and say, we are Christian brothers and sisters together because we hold uh, onto the Trinity and maybe like one or two other doctrines. And, and that's about it. And then to say, you know, if somebody is not part of that, uh, uh communion, I can say, well, you're not part of the, com of the communion of, of saints, the communion of, of, of Christianity because of a failure to, uh, adopt the doctrine of Trinity as, at, at least as, as, as it is, you know, classically explained. For sure. Yeah. It's like they might in, in name worship Christ, but it's like, well, that's not what me, we mean by Christ. We mean the, the, yeah. the deity, the God, man, Christ who became incarnate, who is one of the three persons of the Trinity, who is the son of the father and of whom the spirit proceeds, you know, it's like, well, unless you're right, right. <laughs> there's some, some debate about that. <laughs> but, well, well, sure. But even, but even sure the, we can, we can take the, you know, the preceding stuff and, <laughs> and, and put that to a side because of the gate, you know, let, let's, let's, but we can look at, at, at you know, capital C Catholicism and capital O orthodoxy and say, these are both brothers in, 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 in Christ. Um, because, you know, uh, the filioque is not, you know, it's not so much that the Orthodox disagreed. It was more a, 
Um, I disagree with your authority to unilaterally Im impose it. Right. Um, Very true. But even, even that, even that part aside, right. Um, even if there was a disagreement about that, which is, you know, pretty close to, I mean, it's, it, it's in a lot of, of creeds and so forth. Um, uh, sorry, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Cause I'm, I tend to be a, I tend to be an anti-creedalist, uh, my, myself, but ultimately we can look at each other and we can say we are brothers, even though we are not perfectly aligned on all of our doctrine. Um, and so I, I, I described this in, uh, some sermons I did years back as toaster Jesus. I would actually, I would bring up to the, um, uh, yeah, toaster Jesus. Have I not, I, I haven't described toaster Jesus no, to you guys I have before. No, I've not heard so, this. I, I somehow feel like th this has to do with raisin cakes. It <laughs> could be. It could be in a safe. Like, Sacred are we toasting so, the Yeah, cakes? so basically, um, uh, this is, it's an old trick of, of pastors. What you do is you've got like a pulpit or like, you know, something that pretend is a pulpit. And what you do is before the service starts, you go up and you put a prop on the, the pulpit. Something that doesn't belong there has no business being there. And what I would do is I would take a little toaster, um, something that was, you know, very tiny, light, whatever. And I would, with the electrical cord dangling in front, and I would set it on the edge of the, the pulpit. And I would set it there before service ever started. And of course, when people are walking in, they're, they're, they're chatting and sitting down, they're looking up and they notice it. And they're just like, what, what is that? And it sticks in their head. And whatever you do, like you, you make sure that you tell the worship team, like, don't make reference to the toaster. Don't talk about it. It's just, it just pretend it's not there. And you don't, you don't make any mention of it. And so like the whole time you're doing like, you know, your lead in, your announcements, your worship and everything, the congregation is just like, they get fixated on the toaster. Like, what is this toaster? What is going on? I'm so confused. And then during the sermon, you explain like, uh, you, you take the toaster and you turn it 180 degrees and it turns out there was a label on it on the far side that says Jesus. Right. And so now the toaster has, you, they, they see the toaster f uh, face pointing to them with this label that says Jesus. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to label this toaster Jesus. And I could say, I believe in Jesus and I believe that Jesus provides for me in the form of toast. Um, and, um, and Jesus is real. Right. And Jesus has an impact in my life. Right. And I therefore I am a follower of Jesus. Right. And does this make me a Christian? Right. And of course, if I said all of those words without actually having toaster Jesus in front of me, um, every, the, the, the typical person would say like, oh yeah, you, you, you have proclaimed your faith in, in Jesus Christ. And it's like, well, no, I haven't. I have proclaimed my faith in a toaster oven, <laughs> right. Or a toaster. I, I recognize a toaster oven and a toaster are different, but that's a doctrine for another podcast. But my point though <laughs> is like what you just saying the name of Jesus is insufficient. You have like, like, what does Jesus mean? That's what defines your faith. Well, I, my mind was just blown. So I, I don't yeah, know where to go yeah, from Griffin, there. I'm, Griffin, I'm a thousand percent awesome. stealing that, that illustration. <laughs> you totally should. Totally it's should. so good. Well, that reminds me, I had a professor once who literally said in class, in theology class, uh, that like, oh, it doesn't really matter if it's the bread and the wine, because, uh, you know, what matters is, I guess, like what what's in our heart. So like I've done communion with Doritos and Mountain Dew before. <laughs> and I just I was like sitting there in class and I was looking at him like, dude, I don't even know how to refute what you just said. And it's just like so outside <laughs> of the realm of like, and you know what was funny is that he was otherwise a fantastic professor. Like I actually really liked his class. Um 
you know, I didn't agree with him on everything, but I thought he was a good teacher and a good man. But I was like, dude, I don't even like, what planet do you come from? What, (laughs) you know? Like, at least with grape juice, which is kind of a little different than what Jesus instituted, but at least it's the same color and it's the fruit of the vine, you know, like it's not, it's not out in left field. Yeah, at least it still comes from a grape. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's from a grape. It's just not alcoholic, right? And at least it looks like blood, right? So, But like Mountain Dew and Doritos, dude, I don't even like, that sounds like some weird cult. That doesn't sound like. it's a totally different rabbit trail but it's like like that sounds like the punchline to a blasphemous joke like i i don't like how how is that not just a joke Uh, yeah something on a raunchy like sitcom or something you know (laughs) but uh, i guess the reason it reminded me of that is because it's like yeah just because we call it communion doesn't make a communion like there were (laughs) there were certain elements instituted you know so it's like you can't just replace those with any food and drink there's significance to the reason bread and wine were picked, you know? So. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, then we can go down the whole rabbit hole of transubstantiation, which is both interesting and, and, you know, definitely different points of view on that one. Well, Hey, now we already said nice things about the Catholics. So we can't, you know, (laughs) we can't go back on that now. (laughs) Sure. But they aren't the only ones who believe in transubstantiation. So. Oh yeah. There's also Greg. I don't know who Greg is. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I'm I sure there's confused. a guy named Greg. <laughs> so anyways, so you heard it here first, uh, folks. Griffin says you should learn about the Doctrine of the Trinity, so get to it. Um, <laughs> final question, uh, since we were on that one for a while, uh, let's go ahead and proceed. Um, all right, Griffin, uh, what is your favorite podcast? Oh, this one. Absolutely this one. Oh, no, correct yeah, answer. Yeah. I mean, anybody who says anything different is wrong. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to say, you redeemed yourself from question number one, Griffin. You definitely, like, yep. worked up to What the, was question number one? I, I've already forgotten that far back. You said Jesus was the most interesting <laughs> figure in world history, when clearly it's you. So. Oh, no. Yeah, so. No. No. I, I'm not in history yet. I'm still alive, I think. Well, anyways, at least we worked up uh, from that blunder, and you've definitely cemented your place. It's true in the John okay. three fifteen ending on a good podcast Hall of Fame. So, it's time for the other meat. All right. So with that, now that we've gone through all of our questions, uh, we are going to turn it over to you, Griffin. So we want to hear about uh, Hosea three one. Tell us about these the flagons of wine and the sacred uh, sacred raisin cakes. Uh, and uh, so what's the deal? Why should we care about it? Take, a, take us on a journey. Okay, well, it's definitely going to be a journey. So I don't think you should really care about it that much relative to other verses. <laughs> but, um, you know, I... I compared, it, compared against eschatology and our interpretation of Revelation, how much should we care right, about right, this? Right, right, right. Um, okay, so <laughs> when, when I was an early Christian, I became a Christian when I was in uh, college. And when I was an early Christian, one of the things I liked to do was poke at Christians who had been a Christian like pretty much all of their lives, but were still fairly immature in their Christian faith in terms of like, you know, they would walk around with Bible verses on their t-shirts um, or, or you know, slogans in email and so forth. And um, it was popular, you know, back in the day, email was, you know, starting to be kind of a thing uh, back then. Yes, I am that old. Uh, and so people would uh, start adding uh, Bible references to their signatures in email. 
And uh, so what I started doing was I started adding a couple of Bible references uh, in in my signatures. And one of them was Hosea 3.1. And, um, you know, basically the, the thing about it is like 99% of the time, nobody ever bothered to even notice. Right. But every so often somebody would actually be like, oh, Hosea 3.1. I wonder what that is. And they would look it up and they would read it and they would email me back and saying, um, Griffin, what? And, and I just, I just thoroughly enjoyed <laughs> that, that experience. Um, cause I was just sort of poking fun at the whole, you know, institution of, of inspirational Bible verses. So anyway, Hosea 3, 1, I'm going to, I have a handful of different translations here. I'm going to start with the NIV, uh, and I'll read it in full. And the, the reason I start with the NIV is not because I think it's the bestest translation. It's actually not that bad in this case. Um, I like to dunk on the NIV, but in this case, I think they actually do a pretty decent job. Uh, with one small exception. Um, but the, the reason I want to quote the NIV first is because it's the funniest. Um, and that's really <laughs> what I'm going for here, right? Um, so the, uh, Hosea 3 1 from the NIV, uh, the Lord said to me, uh, quote, uh, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And of course, when I read this, I was like, love the sacred raisin cakes. What on earth is going on here? What does this mean? I'm so confused, right? So, you know, looking at a couple of the other translations, um, let's look at one I think that actually gets it the most accurate, and I'll explain why, um, is the ESV, big shocker. Um, it's actually pretty close to the NIV. I'm only going to quote the very last portion of it. Um, the ESV is, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, right? Which I actually think is probably, um, there isn't the word of in, in the original Hebrew. And my Hebrew is terrible. Um, nowhere, nowhere near as good as my Greek. So I, I you know, I, I'm going to mispronounce. It's probably better than John's. Well, I, I, <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to... Oh, yeah. Your Hebrew is way yeah. better than my Hebrew. <laughs> my Hebrew is pretty bad, so I'm not, I'm going to get a lot of, of details wrong here. So lots of hand-waving. But uh, I, th from what I have studied, I think the ESV is actually probably the closest-ish. Um, in the KJV, it is uh, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. Uh, so flagon is like a vessel. I uh, think like like a bottle of wine or a container, a flask, although it's probably bigger than a flask of wine, um, smaller, smaller than a barrel. But uh, anyway, uh, those the, the the Israelites who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. And in the new KJ, so a, a flagon is like one of those like big, you know, things that you'd see like a Viking chugging beer out of like that's a flagon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but think think Medi Eastern Mediterranean version thereof, probably. <laughs> But yeah, uh, <laughs> something along those lines. And then, so that's KJV. And the new KJV is uh, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans, which is interesting because they kind of, they kind of did this whole like 180 and went with raisin cakes, but then sort of threw in of the pagans uh, on that one as well. So anyway, kind of going through, let's, let's, let's start with, with some word you know, digging. Um, and um, so the word that we're going to focus on is a Hebrew word uh, that I'm going to mispronounce uh, brutally badly for you right now. Um, it is Ashisha or Ashishim. 
uh, which is basically this notion of pressed and baked grapes in small cakes of roasted bean flour. Uh, where baked grapes are essentially raisins, right? So you take the you take the grapes, you squish them, and you press them into small cakes of roasted with roasted bean flour, and you get this uh, ashishim or ashisha, depending upon if I'm pronouncing either of those even remotely correctly. And that's in contrast <laughs> to the Hebrew word for grape, which is anavim or anavim, uh, which I'm also probably deeply uh, mispronouncing. So going to the different translations that I was talking about, like the NIV and the ESV and so forth, I think the ESV is actually probably the most accurate. The NIV is wrong in the sense that they have added the word sacred. Sacred doesn't exist, I think, in the, uh, in the original text, but I think it is a reasonable word to add in terms of meaning, because I think there, and we'll, I'll get to the interpretation of what it, what, what raisin cakes mean, but I think one interpretation, which is probably the right interpretation, um, or the more, more, more accurate interpretation is that the raisin cakes were sacred. They were, they were given to idols. Therefore, they were considered to be sacred. So the word sacred doesn't exist there. The NIV folks added that word, but I think that's a reasonable choice. Um, the New King James version is wrong because there's no word for pagans in there. Uh, the KJV, I think, is wrong because it's not wine. Uh, it's, it's made, so wine is made from the juice of the pressed grapes, uh, but the pressed grapes, uh, themselves are actually the thing that is actually baked into this, this, you know, pressed graped, uh, pressed graped cake, right? Um, and the Hebrew word for wine, uh, is actually jit, Genav Nayan Nayev. I thought isn't it Nayan? Nayev. That's what I remember. Gen Genav. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm I'm <laughs> <laughs> look it up, I am I am almost certainly pronouncing it's... that very, very, very super oh. wrong. So anybody who knows Sorry, it's not it's not Nayan, it's Yayan. It's Yod Yod Nun. So Yeah. So so without the vowels, it's Y Y N. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so no offense to the, the KJV or the new KJV, uh, folks. Um, I mean, I think the new KJV gets it a little bit closer, uh, but they, they add the word, uh, you know, pagan in there, which I mean, can I, can I jump in and I, ask a question? Yeah. Griffin? Yeah. So do you think that the, the, the KJV would renders it like flagons of wine? Um, do you, do you think that's because like when the KJV was being translated, this is what you know, they would have thought the word meant. And like, since then, our understanding of ancient Hebrew has improved. So we like now know what this word means, uh, you know, maybe from like other sources or something like that. Or do you think it's something where they just like made a mistake? No, I, th I, th I think it's it's um, based on I don't I, I mean, I both of those things are true. I think I think I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they made a mistake, but I think it's also they made the mistake because of the the source material that they were using to build out the, the KJV. Um, and the reason I start to think that is because like there are folks like John Calvin, right? Um, uh, a non-trivial, uh, Bible scholar, uh, to say the least. Um, and he translated it as flagons of grapes. Uh, John Wesley, equally not a, uh, a slouch when it came to biblical study, uh, translated it, uh, gr uh, drink wine to excess, um, which is hmm, kind of out there, right? So I think that's based a lot in part around, 
like where the source material is coming from. Uh, you know, if you if you go from Hebrew to, you know, Septuagint to then Vulgate to then whatever came after the, Vul the, the German, and then that goes into, you know, English, I, I think you can get, it's pretty easy to go telephone into Flagons. I mean, I guess Flagons was a popular word back then. Well, yeah, and it makes sense because, I mean, if we're talking about pressing grapes into a cake, then there's probably some sort of etymological similarity. I mean, if we really wanted to get into the weeds and research it, which probably we don't need to, but there's probably some etymological reasons why there's a confusion with like pressing grapes into a cake versus, you know, pressing grapes and making wine, you know? So I, I, that's at least what comes to my mind. Right. And ultimately it all derives from one word. So like ultimately in English, we're using multiple words to get to the idea here, but it, it's all coming from a single Hebrew word, right? So it's not like they're taking a phrase and like reconstruing it in some weird way. It's like they're, they're trying to figure out, well, what does this word mean? And the word does revolve around pressing grapes, right? And, and, and baking them, uh, to some, uh, so, you know, you put that all together and it's like, I can, I can see where, I, I would call it personally a mistranslation, but I can, I can see where, you know, very smart people, way smarter than me, went in that particular direction based on the information that was available to them at the time. So, um, so well, the New King James, I mean, the New King James, what is it, what did you say it was? It was like, New King raisin James cakes of the is, pagans? yeah, raisin cakes of the pagans. And of course, of the pagans doesn't exist in the text at all, but I think they're adding that similar to how like the ENIV added the word sacred. They're trying to, describe the the nature of the raisin cakes in the context of Hosea 3 1. I, the New King James just kind of went like the route of making it a band name. Like the raisin <laughs> cakes of the pagans. It sounds like you go to like a death metal concert and the opening act is some like an obscure indie <laughs> act you've never heard of. And like we are the the raisin cakes of the pagans. Yeah, so you, you think like like metal? See the first thing I thought of was like a folk band. <laughs> Those are pretty different, but well, the best part is I could I could actually yeah. see both raisin cakes. Of the, see, I think it's I think it's where you put the word pagan. Like raisin cakes of the pagans, I would say is a folk band. But if you go pagan raisin cakes, then then it's like no, that's that's metal. <laughs> yeah, if pagan is like the focus. Then it definitely becomes a little different. I get it. Yeah. Right, right. And then they finish they finish their set and they're like, "You guys have been great. You're a good audience. All right, next up is the flagons of wine." Exactly. Right. <laughs> The flagons <laughs> of wine is is got to be right. like an alternative metal uh, sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Or just like alternative rock, yeah. you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, so getting back to the actual text, um and and, and away from various <laughs> musical concerts. Um raisin <laughs> the thing to understand about the Hosea in con in historical context here is raisin cakes were often offered to idols. Uh, which is, you know, like I said, probably why the NIV decided to add the word sacred, possibly why the New King James also, you know, added of the pagans. Um, raisin cakes were offered to idols. Raisin cakes were actually fairly common um, in the period. Uh, they seem to be something of a sweet delicacy in the sense of like, uh, like a dessert sort of thing or, or something that you would enjoy. But they were fairly common, uh, at least uh, theoretically, uh, you know, being that grapes were fairly common. Uh, and we see reference to raisin cakes in a few few different places in Scripture. So in 1 Samuel chapter 30, uh, raisin cakes are used to revive a fainting slave. So, you know, if you're if you're a slave and you're kind of worn out, 
you might get a raisin cake as a treat to kind of give you a little bit of energy and kind of boost your spirit a bit. First uh, Samuel 25, they're part of a generous list of food uh, provided by Abigail for David. And then in 2 Samuel uh, 6 and in 1 Corinthians uh, 16, David hands out raisin cakes to the people after a sacrifice in the temple. And he did that as a sign of celebration and blessing, basically sharing dessert, I guess, uh, a form of dessert uh, or something special. Uh, so even though it may be for special purposes, um, raisin cakes did have some level of, of commonality. So I think there's really kind of looking at this verse. So this is like the this is like the equivalent of a, like a chocolate chip cookie kind yeah. of thing. You know, after you get blood drawn, they'll they'll give you a cookie. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. You get a chocolate chip a chocolate chip cookie. In fact, actually, raisin cakes later in history, not in this period, but later in history, it was not uncommon for raisin cakes to be made uh with an ad of some additives of chocolate uh and in one case uh, a chocolate and rum uh for for a particular type of raisin cake i don't think that was true in this particular period uh but yeah i mean it, it's definitely the the cookie that you get after you after you know a blood draw or something like that so depending upon how you translate this verse i mean there's really sort of two kind of ways of of translating either the the raisin cakes sacred raisin cakes on one side of things or you know raisin cakes of the pagans uh and on on one side of things or something about wine flagons of wine or you know drinking to excess or something on the other side of the fence i think you know obviously i'm leaning more toward the sacred raisin cakes side of things uh but either one of them i think has some useful meaning like if the phrase has anything to do with wine, then I think likely an interpretation of the of the passage is God is condemning uh, drunkenness, uh, drinking to excess, which is where John Wesley basically took uh, the the interpretation in his commentary. Um, but if you're if you're looking at it from a uh, which I think is probably more accurate, the raisin cakes perspective, it probably indicates um, a uh, condemning of uh, debauched feasts in the temples of idols or the 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 worshiping of idols or the bowing down to sacred raisin cakes as part of a, a ritual for, you know, false gods and so forth. And so Ultimately, when it comes back to sort of the context of Hosea uh, 3.1, uh, the God, uh, God is instructing, uh, Hosea, you know, uh, love your wife as the Lord loves the Israelites, even though they do some pretty horrible things, right? Like, like, uh, and basically saying, you know, yeah, your wife is, loves another uh, man. It, she is an adulteress, but love her anyway. Uh, because, you know, look at the Israelites. They turn to other gods, uh, false gods that don't exist. And they are, you know, loving sacred raisin cakes. They are, you know, revering the sacred raisin cakes they are they are putting their heart and soul into the raisin cakes uh and towards other gods fake gods and not loving the lord and yet the lord continues to love the, the israelites even though that that takes place and so you know there is the amusingness of worshiping sacred raisin cakes uh on one side but there is an actual you know beautiful meaning behind this uh verse that that even when we turn away from God and we find our own sacred raisin cakes to worship in our own lives, God still loves us despite our disobedience. So when it says that they love sacred raisin cakes, give me a better idea of like what that entails worship wise. Are they eating the raisin cakes as part of their worship to these other gods? Or are they like offering the raisin cakes to the gods as a sort of, you know, 
like or both or, so or maybe it, they offer it and then they eat it, yeah, it, it, like, it with, yeah, so so we don't have much to go on in this verse in particular. We basically have to go to sort of historical context around this. And so at the in the time of Hosea, it could be either way or potentially both. So in um Greek uh, mythological practice, religious practice, you would uh, create these feasts of food and you would um, sacrifice the feast. And it's not really a sacrifice. You would offer up the feasts of food to a particular God in their temple, right? So let's say you have, you're, you're in Corinth and you, 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 you've got the temple of Apollo and uh, you're going to make this giant feast of food and you're going to put it before the altar of Apollo. So you imagine, you know, this big giant, you know, uh, statue of Apollo on a chair or something like that. And you're offering up, uh, you know, feasts at the feet of of this this idol. Right. And saying, here, here you go, uh, Apollo, enjoy this meal. And of course, Apollo's not real. So the meal doesn't go anywhere. Um, but it's part of this sort of religious practice. And then, then it's like, okay, well, what happened to the food? Well, the food was then, uh, the, the, the priests of the temple would go and snack on the food, but there was usually a fair amount of food because Corinth had a lot of food, right? And it was fairly customary for, you know, you would go to the temple, you would make some sort of donation of food in this sort of practice. So what happened to this excess food? They would actually take it to the back of the temple, not kidding. And there was a roadway, uh, that actually led from, a, uh, a, a one area of residential neighborhood down to, I forget the exact words of this, but basically there's this main, it's like a main street or a main promenade area. And I, oh, there's a specific name for it, but it's, it's escaping my memory. But essentially we have reasonable suspicion to believe that one of the early Christian churches, in fact, possibly the Christian church that the letters uh, of, of Paul to uh, the Corinthians were, the, that, that was the church, was actually in that spot. And so, you know, people walking to and from might pass behind the the uh, temple of apollo and snack on some of the food right and so when paul is talking about like well that could be a stumbling block for some people but it's not necessarily a sin to eat this food because you know apollo's not real and you know apollo's not real um so it's totally cool to eat food that was given to something that isn't real right but that might cause other people to stumble in their faith so you should probably avoid it if that's going to be the case right so anyway tying that all together. So in terms of the sacred raisin cakes, I think it could be both the creation of them, the offering of them in ceremony, and possibly even the eating thereof. So I think the question that at least it's burning in my mind is like, let's say a Christian really loves oatmeal raisin cookies and they bring them to church with them and eat them at church. Like, what is, or, or let's say, like, God forbid, the, the, the foyer. <laughs> I can't even, can't even finish my thought. But the foyer has oatmeal raisin cookies out for people to snack on as they, you know, converse. Perhaps even some enterprising pagans take the, the, the oatmeal raisin cookies with them into the sanctuary. Um as they worship. I mean, what, how should we think about that as Christians? Is this a serious issue? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to chalk that up to not a serious issue unless it causes certain people to stumble. Right. So like, um, it's, it's sort of the, it's sort of the thing I'm, I'm a very, 
I have a great love of high liturgy services in the sense of I have a great, not respect, that's not the right word. Um, I enjoy the reverence that can be rendered to God through a high liturgy, but I am a low liturgy dude, right? So <laughs> for me, uh, like, you know, if, if somebody wants to eat an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie during the, you know, church service, by all means, go for it. Um, it may distract me slightly during a sermon and I might be starting to salivate because I really want some of the cookie and I, it would be bad for me to eat it while actually preaching a sermon because then, you know, I wouldn't be able to get done with a sermon. I would be highly distracted and that's probably a bad thing, but I don't, I don't personally see anything like theologically wrong with like eating a, uh, or doctrinally wrong with eating a, uh, you know, warmed chocolate chip oatmeal you know, raisin, whatever, rum, cookie uh, during church service. But if I can definitely see a situation where, you know, some believers may look at that and say, like, I really don't like it. it. It distracts me from my opportunity of worshiping God in this service. And that could be a bad thing. Like if someone bites into the cookie and says, oh, I love oatmeal raisin cookies. <laughs> it, is it our place as Christians to step in and say, like, no, you should love God. You shouldn't love oatmeal raisin cookies. That's blasphemy. I mean, Hosea three one. We have a proof text, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, the the counter argument could be, but but what what you're talking about here is they are loving sacred raisin cakes, and I'm actually not loving sacred raisin cakes. I am loving non sacred raisin oatmeal rum cookies. Very different. Mm, gotcha. <laughs> Those answers okay, were that's... way better than my questions warranted. <laughs> 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 I appreciate you, but I have no, I, I have no regrets. <laughs> well, well, maybe on a on a on a slightly more serious question for you, Griffin. Then is um, so as we're thinking about how how we might make sense of this verse in the present day, um, I, I can kind of see this going a couple different directions with you know. You, you, the way that we might kind of apply this this scripture to our our own lives, and and I have a question about it, and that is. You know, would these would these raisin cakes be like a sign of um, like some kind of like uh, like wealth that that a person would offer? Or is this something that's more like nominal that you could participate in? Like, is this a is this like a budget sacrifice that you could, you know, squeeze in? Uh, uh, you know, on the side, or is this, you know, you know, a much more serious kind of thing, like you're supplying this whole feast or something like that? You know, is, is this like small idolatry or big idolatry in terms of like the amount of uh, that you're like putting into it? Well, in terms of economics, I would hazard a guess that it is not it is it is a it is a a mild sacrifice in the sense of of, you know, you do have to, you know, uh, actually create the raisin cakes, right? So like it is, it is work to put it in. It is a, you know, a special thing. It is not a, let's say you wouldn't eat raisin cakes every day, you know, kind of thing. But nevertheless, it is not something that's like rare. This is not like, you know, 50 talons of, of silver or something like that. This is, this is something that is fairly common. Um, it's, it's, um, I mean, David handed out raisin cakes to the people, all of the people, you know, men, women, uh, men and women alike, uh, you know, after the sacrifice in the temple and so forth. Um, so, I mean, this is not, um, this is not 
rare, but I would say I would sort of look at it as uh, maybe the modern equivalent of like a cheesecake where it's like we don't eat cheesecake every day. Um, I love cheesecake, but I don't eat it every day. Um, it's a, it's one of those, you know, special occasion kind of things. And, um, but it's not like, you know, cheesecakes are exceedingly rare or expensive or hard to come by or anything. I really want cheesecake now. I mean, I really want one of those like oatmeal raisin rum chocolate cookies. Those sound awesome. Yeah, they do. They very much do. Well, I kind of, I kind of want to try one of these sacred raisin cakes, like not to love them. But like, I want to be there when David's handing these out. Like, these sound kind of tasty, right? And I think it's it's important to recognize like the fact that raisin cakes are mentioned in Hosea three one is not to say that raisin cakes are inherently bad, right? Um, and it's not even the loving of the raisin cakes that it's in, that's inherently bad. It's the idea that I'm turning from uh, God to something else right and it just happens to be raisin cakes right um so you know replace raisin cakes with anything right um you know i'm I'm turning from god to uh really get into music i'm turning away from god to get into video games i'm turning away from god to really get into whatever right and all of those whatevers there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful about those whatevers but when they take our focus away from god when they uh when they are placed uh in front of god when they have priority uh over god in our lives that's the that's the sin and it's the sin of idolatry in particular you know it's like and let's not forget right, right. like the original verse as much as we've been talking about raisin cakes it specifically says they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Like those two ideas are linked. Right. The word and doesn't always mean, particularly in scripture, doesn't always mean like two separate ideas. Sometimes it means two linked ideas, you know? And so, yeah, like, which is another argument against Yeah, I it. mean, the, 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 the practice of, you know, sacrificing the raisin cakes for some definition of sacrifice, offering of raisin cakes or consuming of the raisin cakes in ritual to these other gods. Uh, they, they, they're, yeah, the writer is, is definitely talking. I think it's, they're, t the, the writer's talking about the same thing, turning to idols and engaging in worship of those idols, which involves raisin cakes in that particular case. Not that raisin cakes are inherently bad, but because they are in practice of serving the, the false gods, uh, they are, uh, they are sinful. So maybe we could, you know, take a step back and questions about raisins, and their cakes aside um what about just like the the general meaning of this verse and its place in hosea right because this is a book that i, I find kind of challenging uh you know for those who who uh, perhaps haven't read hosea in a while you know this story of uh hosea is is called to marry a woman who is a prostitute and and the idea is it's kind of like a picture lesson for the people of israel this is what God has to deal with, right? Uh, with you guys who go after other gods, uh, like prostitutes, instead of being faithful to me. And I have trouble with this because I just think it's kind of unfair to Hosea. That's always kind of how I how I feel when I get to this book. But I, I find this idea really interesting, this idea of idolatry. E even these, these cakes of raisins can be such a deep symbol of rebellion against God. And that that's kind of crazy, you know, that that anything when offered up to another god is false worship. So I'm kind of just curious, like what your overall thoughts are on 
this like story and Hosea and and maybe just idolatry in general. We could have a little discussion of that stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think you nailed it. I mean, Hosea three one in a sense is kind of in in some ways also the cornerstone to the idea of Hosea as as a book, right? You, you, as an allegory, Hosea and his uh, you know unfaithful wife and the Lord and the unfaithful Israelites, right? Um, and the notion that like despite the fact that the Israelites turn away from God, God still loves them and does not turn away from them. Right. Um, and so like, like, yeah, I, I think you nailed it. Something I hear a lot about idolatry that I don't know that I, that I quite agree with, uh, but I also don't know that I disagree with. <laughs> um, and I know that John Calvin talks a lot about this. So this is definitely in the stream of theology that I find myself in. But you, you do hear a lot of people talking about, for example, how everything can be idolatry. And, and we've already discussed that sort of together today, that anything in place of, of God can be an idol. But I sometimes find that people apply that idea in strange ways or in ways that don't, I don't know, that, that are, I guess, not really attuned to what goes on in the real world. So, for example, I've heard of people saying that, like, reading the Bible can itself be an idol. Uh, bibliolatry is the term that's used. And don't get me wrong. I mean, you've got like the Pharisees who who idolize the scriptures in a sense because they study them, but they don't possess eternal life, you know. So so I, I get that, that anything can be an idol. But the problem is I often see bibliolatry thrown around at like Christians who are just trying to like live by the Bible, you know. And maybe they are pedantic and nerdy like we are, and, and, and perhaps that that can be to excess. But I see that this idolatry term thrown around in all sorts of contexts where it just seems like a epithet, like a pejorative. Um, you know, there's lots of different things, like lots of words and terms people use that aren't really meant to convey anything, but are just sort of insults. You know, it, politics is full of this <laughs> on both sides, you know. So I won't say them because uh, perhaps uh, Google will take our podcast down. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> But the, so, suffice it to say, I think people, I don't know, I've, I've seen the word idolatry used in contexts that I think are are that and not like a genuine concern for people's like spiritual state. I don't know if that if you guys have noticed that. Well, sure. I mean, one thing, I mean, this kind of gets a little bit away from the original verse, but maybe that's OK. And it's it's fun to go explore uh, when someone is, you know, has unconfessed sin in their life. Uh, there's going to be ultimately be some sense of guilt that they feel feel because of that sin, um, even if they're and then you know they're unconfessing that sin, they're going to try to suppress that guilt, but the guilt never truly goes away. And part of a suppression tactic is to look at people who appear, at least to them, to be more righteous than they, and to scoff at that righteousness, right? And so if someone is studying the Bible fairly religiously, you know, in, in a sense of, of dutifully and, and, uh, on a regular schedule and in, and in detail, uh, and it, and it comprises some level of sacrifice and work, uh, the person who doesn't do that and feels guilt over not doing that is going to want to try to find a reason to condemn the righteousness they see in the other person without calling it that, of course. Um, at least consciously, uh, and as a result, make themselves make themselves feel better about the guilt that they are 
that they have and maybe further suppress that guilt, right? So there's that side of the coin as well. Yeah, hmm, that's true. Another one that I hear a lot is like idolatry of the family. That's a really common phrase in like, I don't know, big evangelical speakers and conference people and and thought leaders and publishing houses. There's there's this like a lot of this talk of, uh, oh, you know, uh, conservative Christians idolize the family too much. And it's like, um, I don't know. Is that really the biggest problem in America right now? I, I don't, is exalting the, the family really our issue? Right? Like, I don't know. It just seems like people, people can become unbalanced in this area. And so I get a little hesitant when I start thinking of like, oh, things in my life can be idolatry, right? Because I want to start identifying like, okay, what is a sin and what's not? You know, if I like playing video games in my spare time, am I an idolater? Well, no, not necessarily. But nevertheless, like, just because I get angry at kind of the overuse of this idea of anything becoming an idol doesn't mean that it's not like still a good point and true. You know, if cakes of raisins can be used in worship to false gods, then certainly a video game could be. (laughs) <laughs> you know right and i mean there and 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 i think it goes back to what paul wrote right i mean it, it raisin cakes are not inherently sinful uh video games are not inherently sinful but i can absolutely use both of those things um as idols and turn my attention away from god well so then if there is kind of this tendency maybe to um i guess identify or i i, I would say maybe compartmentalize idolatry into these uh, uh, like categories that might be kind of not really the biggest issue for the American church to deal with. Like, you know, like idol, uh, you know, uh, idolizing the Bible or idolizing the family. It's like, well, you know, that, that, that may be true, but it's probably hardly not the biggest deal that we have to, uh, uh, you know, biggest issue that we have to deal with. What then, um, are some of the bigger issues that we have to deal with in the American church? And, you know, how can we then as Christians in the American church be guarding ourselves against maybe these subtler or more endemic kinds of idolatry? Just say no to oatmeal raisin cookies, man. That's that stuff will hook you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> For everyone, it's going to be different, right? Um, so... It's difficult to, I I don't want to put down, I don't want to put down some sort of statement that acts like the, oh, you should, you should, you should be on the lookout for raisin cakes, right? Um, Because, and I, and so when I, when I say video games, I'm, I'm like, please understand like audience, I'm not, I'm not grabbing video games because I'm saying like, Ooh, that's something you should be careful of. It's like, well, no, I think, I think anything could be x right it could be raisin cakes it could be video games it could be cars it could be i don't know whatever uh you know just like 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 there any value of x can be uh a stumbling block and pull somebody somebody's uh attention away from the lord so i don't want to label anything because beyond the examples that i've i've just used purely for example sake because for each person, it's potentially going to be a different set of idols that are at uh, that that may cause them to be at risk, right? So rather, I would use the heuristic of saying, "What do I find 
as a as a routine tends to occupy my attention and prevent me from having time to devote to to God, right? So, you know, we we talk about I mean, we're all involved in Bible quizzing. Um we all love, you know, memorizing uh scripture and participating in Bible quizzing meets and and studying the Bible and reading the Bible and so forth and worshiping God and so forth. But, uh, you know, some folks would say, well, I, I would love to be involved in something like that. I would love to study the Bible more. I would love to read the Bible more, but I just don't have time. I'm like, okay, well, what is it that's taking up your time right now? It could be, uh, you know, I'm in an economic situation where I need to work three jobs to pay rent and keep food on the table. And when I get back from my third job, I'm so exhausted, it, it takes all my energy to prepare food and go to sleep. And thus, I don't have time. And that's totally, completely fair, right? But a lot of times we do have time, but we allow our idols to come before uh, time with God, right? And so I would use the heuristic to say, well, if I'm not praying to the degree that I feel I ought, or I'm not studying scripture to the degree that I ought, feel that I ought, or whatever it happens to be. Um, I'm not, you know, I come from a holiness trans, uh, uh, you know, uh, a background in terms of, of, you know, relig religiosity. So I, you know, I, I would use the phrase something like, if I am not striving to pursue a life of holiness to the degree that I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to do. Um, what is it that is causing me not to have the time to do that? Um, the, the focus to be able to do that and then question those things and say, are any of those things idols? And maybe none of them are right. Maybe it's just, I'm, I'm just super busy for a season and these things happen. Right. Um, but if I'm seeing a recurring theme of a thing, that thing might be suspect and I should consider it maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think. I was the one who brought up video games just because it's it's something that I spend a lot of time on, you know. But I think to what you just said, Griffin, it's when you say don't have time, it's like, okay, do I really not have time to to make for the Lord? Or is it I don't have time to, you know, spend time with the Lord and complete all the new video games I'm interested in playing as they come out? Or is it for, and this is, I think, far more common for most people, um, do I really not have time for the Lord or do I not have time for the Lord and the two episodes of my show that I watch when I get home from work, you know, after the kids go to bed or whatever. Uh, and, and none of which are bad. I mean, like all, obviously, like you said, it's good to unwind, um, play a video game, watch your shows. Right. Uh, but, uh, the question being, you know, is there time for the Lord in that? Is it, uh, is it restful, recreation is it you know honoring to the lord are you doing it you know whoever eats should eat to the lord whoever drinks should drink to the lord that kind of uh, mentality and and i think a, a good gauge of that without getting super off into the weeds of like examining the depths of your soul because we could always ask if we're being as faithful to the lord as we possibly could be and the answer is always no <laughs> right yeah you can't you can't know perfectly. So, but I think a lot, what a lot of people want to know is not, you know, am I perfect, obviously, but rather, am I on the right track? You know, am I getting better? Am I uh, being faithful, generally speaking? And I think the answer to that is a lot easier to discover because then you just have to ask yourself questions like, am I going to church on Sunday mornings, generally speaking? You know, 
accepting if I'm traveling or I'm sick or whatever, am I faithful to show up and worship Christ? Well, if, if that's a yes, okay, well, that's one area of my life in which I'm putting Christ ahead of idols, you know. Am I finding time to pray to the Lord? Even if I got those three jobs, am I, you know, finding some time to just say, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to feed my family. Please help me through the day. That's all. Is there space in your brain, you know, <laughs> for, for, for that, right? And if you don't have that much time, or if you don't have that much time at work and you have a few more minutes to yourself, am I finding time to learn about scripture at all? like on a, on a regular basis. Those are sorts of questions we can ask to see if we're on the right track. Yeah. And I want to echo something that you said there. You, you mentioned, um, you know, whatever you do, whether it be, you know, eating or, or whatever it happens to be, you know, you can do it for the Lord. Right. Um, that that's something that's really important, like cooking, right. Um, you can love cooking to the point where it becomes an idol and it takes your, your, your attention away from God or you can love cooking in, and it is actually, I, I don't, I, I hesitate to say, to say in service of the Lord, but you can in a sense, worship God through the, the art of cooking, right? Um, and through the art of art, right? There are folks who paint and through the expression of their painting are worshiping God through that. And certainly we see a more common expression of that through song, right? So we worship God through song in a church service. And so we certainly don't look at somebody who loves singing and loves singing hymns and say, Oh, well, that, that hymns are your, you know, an idol for you, right? And you should be on guard against that, right? It's certainly not, right? But, you know, really anything could be something that can f turn into an idol to distract from God, or it can be done as something that draws you closer to God through that, that process. And I don't want to come across, and I, I want to make sure I'm not being misinterpreted, uh, to mean that like, okay, I'm only really talking about sort of the stereotypical things that are, that, that Christians do like, you know, uh, going to church and studying the Bible and fellowshipping with other Christians and so forth. And those are the only things that give glory to, glory to God. Certainly the, the list is infinite. Um, and anything that, you know, that we do can be given, can through that process be, uh, give glory to God. And I think that's the, the question. And it kind of then comes back to this uh, idea of, you know, you mentioned the Pharisees. We need to be non-pharisaical. We need to get away from legalism of the idea of, you know, do A, B, and C and you're okay, but avoid X, Y, and Z because that's bad. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm much more with Paul on this one that it's like, well, A, B, C, X, Y, Z, it, it kind of depends, right? <laughs> it's like, like, why are you doing A, B, C, X, Y, Z? Um, and that really puts all of that into a context of whether it is worshiping God or worshiping idols. Yeah, it definitely seems like particularly in the New Covenant age where we have the law that gives freedom that is talked about in James. Um, like in this age, there, there's not so much do's and do nots as there is do it this way for this purpose, right? <laughs> for God's glory, you know. And of right, course, right. we mm -hmm. have some do nots and some do's. And that's why I think it's it's easy to look at our lives and say, hey, Am I making time for for some sort of spiritual discipline? If not, then that's probably an indication something's wrong. Not because I'm failing to do something so much as my heart is not in the right place to prioritize my time correctly. Um, but that's not to say that like we have to spend all our free time doing spiritual disciplines. We could spend our free time cooking, 
to the glory of God, you know? So, so I think there's like that, that balance to be found in the Christian life where, where we do, we do want to do certain things and obviously we want to avoid others, but most of the things we do on a regular basis are not in either category. Rather, they, they could be things that are occasions to give glory to God, or they could be things that are idols. And it really just depends on our heart and how we approach them. I mean, you could cook to the glory of God, or you could cook to be like Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, I'm, I'm remembering a story of John Wesley. Um, Wesley is, a, I'm a big fan of Wesley. And uh, <laughs> there was a time where he was uh, in England and he was, uh, had a little cottage and was tending to a garden uh, in the cottage and uh, one of his friends came by and teased him uh, in a in a friendly sort of way but but teased him by saying well if, if the if uh, you were called home right now uh, your last act would be something that wasn't you know worshiping God shouldn't you be you know worshiping God right now shouldn't you instead of tending to your garden uh, shouldn't you be pre preparing yourself to meet the, the Lord by either studying scripture or be, you know, um, going through a, some form of discipleship, uh, in, in the moment rather than tending to the garden. And Wesley said, no. And of course it, you know, it was a, a jovial encounter as I read it. Uh, but Wesley said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to meet the Lord right this instant, even though I am down in the dirt and grubby, um, this is, you know, God's earth and God's plants that he's given to me to be a steward over. And so, you know, I am tending to what God has, has given me to be a steward of, and therefore I am serving God through that process. And I, I thought it was a, kind of a, a fun story and, and illustrative of a, that particular point of view. Yeah. So even the raisin cake manufacturer, <laughs> well, and to circle back to something that that Jeremy had just said that, um, you know, it, hopefully this will be helpful for people as a way of thinking about it. And that is that, you know, we aren't, you know, we, we shouldn't um, like analyze our actions for the purpose of understanding our actions, but that we should like analyze our actions as a way of understanding where what our heart is like, you know, that it's not always necessarily easy to know where your heart is with something but you can like through like observing how you behave use that as a way of of propagating back to figure out you know where is your heart that gives rise to these actions you know because it's like because that really is the piece with idolatry it's you know where where you have set your heart and so this, you know, introspection should, you know, it shouldn't be about setting up these rules and saying, like, am I meeting X standard or Y standard? Because then that's that's all about, you know, setting your actions against some standard, which is not really the point, but rather seeing, you know, how your heart is set against the, you know, this standard of faithfulness to God. Yeah, totally agree. Well, with that being said, I think we've we've kind of hit it everything. Um, we've gotten hungry. We've talked about idolatry. We've talked about Hosea, Martin Luther. <laughs> I think we've had a pretty good run of it. Yeah. And so Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you know, before we close things out, uh, wanted to ask if there's, uh, uh, anything you were wanting to plug at the end of the podcast. Is there, you know, maybe some content that you generate that you could direct people to if they're interested in more of your thoughts? Um, well, I, I want to plug Bible quizzing. Um, so anybody who's listening, uh, if you're not involved in Bible quizzing, you should be because it is the awesomest program. I, I truly believe Bible quizzing, uh, without 
you know, exaggeration in the slightest is the greatest, uh, most effective discipleship program in modern Christianity today, certainly in Western Christianity, uh, if not worldwide. So, uh, I, you know, if you haven't heard of Bible quizzing, if you haven't gotten involved in Bible quizzing yet, I urge you to seek it out and learn more. And obviously I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here because I know both of you guys are involved in, in quizzing, but I just wanted to reach out to your audience uh, through you and say, get involved if you're not already involved. Where can people find out more about Bible quizzing? Well, you can go to the awesomest website ever created, pnwquizzing.org, uh, and learn about uh, Bible quizzing in the Pacific Northwest. But if you are not in the Pacific Northwest, uh, let's see, CMA quizzing.org maybe or something like that or just google bible quizzing and you can there's there's a bunch of different programs that are out there uh probably one of them um maybe even more than one is available in your local area and uh reach out get connected uh it's going to seem weird it's going to seem super nerdy it's going to seem very complicated but just kind of roll with it for a little while imagine Somebody who never, you know, had, had, has never experienced Christianity, grew up outside of Christianity, who decides to visit church for the very first time, it's going to seem weird and confusing and they don't really understand what's going on for a while. And then the impact and the value of it come over time as they start to get acclimated to the, both the culture and the doctrine and the people. Similarly in quizzing, uh, you know, when you first experience it, it's going to be weird. Uh, but that's okay. Just kind of roll with it. Uh, it. Trust me, you will you will very quickly learn to see how it is the greatest discipleship program in Christianity today. Well, we'll have those links in the show, so people will be able to examine it for themselves and perhaps start a program at their church. Um, or if you have kids, get your kids involved and uh, definitely reach out to us on the podcast email if you'd like to know more about that. John and I are also volunteers. That's how we know Griffin. And uh, we'd love to see more kids get to know God's word. So that's uh, that's what we're all about, too. Yep. So feel free to consider us as a resource as well. Listening audience, if you have more questions, uh, you can send them to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and, you know, it's not strictly on the uh, uh, related to the podcast, but it's something that both me and Jeremy love and care a lot about. And so if we can point you in the right direction, we would love to do so. Well, Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, uh, I think with that, we'll close things out. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate uh, hanging with you guys and uh, uh, chatting about the Bible and your fun questions. Well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to the John three fifteen podcast at gmail.com. That's the John three one five podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.